0: There's no crisis in education among middle-class and wealthy people in this country, as far as they can tell. Their kids are getting to college and so forth and so on. The crisis in education is for the lower half, and those folks don't have the clout or the power.. All right, that's just your attention to. Vietnam. We've had work in the area working on this track.
1: Welcome to Deeper Dish. Welcome back to Deeper Dish. Today, we have probably my most famous guest or most recognized guest. Steve is the executive director of UIC's Urban Education Leadership Institute, and his role is to essentially provide effective leaders for schools within the state of Illinois, specifically focused in the Chicago, Chicago area. We have a discussion about education, race and education, and all things education. Steve has been sought after by administrations, both at the local level. He has influenced national education policy. This was probably the most difficult interview to make happen because he's so sought after. And I had to do some underhanded crazy things because... I am a family friend, <laughs> but he was really hard to pin down. Things like texting his wife and reminding her that I wanted him on the show and reaching out to his daughter, who's my friend, and having her call him and maybe send in some, some wine, all types of things. But most important is that Steve is here to talk about education and his views on education.
0: Please go directly to the auditorium upon. My name is Steve Tozer, and uh, I'm a professor in educational policy studies at the University of Illinois at Chicago. I've been with the University of Illinois system now going on my 40th year. I was at Champaign-Urbana for 16 years and department head down there before I came up here and was department head in educational policy studies before I started the Center for Urban Education Leadership. Both of my parents graduated from Chicago Public High Schools and I grew up in downstate Illinois in Springfield and came up here to Chicago 25 years ago almost and since that time have been focusing largely on developing teacher quality for Chicago Public Schools After doing that for almost 10 years, I shifted to developing teacher quality through school leadership because I began to believe that colleges of education are important but relatively, ultimately weak treatments for developing the quality of teachers we need. They can give teachers a good start. But I began to believe that true teacher learning of the highest level takes place on the job in schools. And so I began to focus on school leadership as the key to creating learning environments for teachers in schools. Attention, teachers. Class, class. Yes, yes. Where'd you go to elementary school? Mason, Ardell. Oh, yeah. I'm working with Mason right now, working with their principal. I'm very interested in North Lawndale because, I mean, we're working with eight principals right now on a really interesting intervention, which is pre-K through three literacy. If you can get these kids reading well by third grade, and you can, then... That has enormous impact on their eighth grade reading scores. If you can get kids reading well by third grade, man,
1: it eliminates a world of hurt. But what has your research found to be some of the limitations in getting the kids to the appropriate level?
0: First of all, I'm going to point out a structural problem in the system that we didn't know about until we started doing this work. And it's one of the reasons that I think it's very important once you start in on addressing a problem that you stay with it year in, year out. And pretty soon... You're the smartest guy in the room about that problem because you've learned and learned and learned, right? Right. So one of the things that we discovered that we didn't know was that Chicago Public Schools pre-K program right now is not neighborhood centered so that kids can go to pre-K to Mason, but when they go to kindergarten, they won't go to Mason. They're going somewhere else because they've been bussed in to Mason for the pre-K. Well, this is really problematic, right? It's not horrible, but it's less than optimal because what it means is that Mason is investing in these kids at the pre-K partly because they know they can work with them at K and work with them at first, Mm -hmm. but then these kids don't show up for kindergarten. And actually, it's a disincentive for investing in kids that aren't your own, so to speak. One of the great things about working with kids at pre-K and K is you'll never have more access to parents than in the pre-K and K years. Trying to establish relationships with parents at the eighth grade level is virtually impossible because, uh, I mean, I won't say impossible, but it's it's much harder. If you establish strong relationships with parents pre-K and K and those kids actually stay with you, through 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th, and 8th, you've got a relationship with those parents that gives you purchase on these 8th graders that you just otherwise don't have. In other words, the parents in the school are allies in working with a kid. So I just mentioned a little structural problem, but there are other obstacles to really working well. So I'll get to those. Some of the
1: research s- that I've read said that parent involvement, parent education levels play a part in how well students do.
0: The research is pretty clear that That poverty, whether it's white poverty or Hispanic poverty or black poverty, has an impact on kids' readiness for school. There's a lot of theorizing about that. There's some pretty decent empirical research about it. But it has to do with when kids come to school uh, for kindergarten from poor families, they are not as ready for what the school is expecting them to be ready for as kids from middle class and upper middle class families. That's regardless of ethnicity. In the recession we're climbing our way out of right now, in that recession that started in 2008, it gutted the economic stability of white families downstate. And one of the things that happened as a result of that was white performance in downstate schools really declined dramatically. And we've done the research on 55 of the largest districts in the state of Illinois. Thirty-five of those districts had fairly significant declines in student performance, and so the question is, well, geez, why should poverty by itself affect kids' readiness to learn? Part of it really is what kind of experiences are kids having in a high-poverty household versus the experiences that kids are having in a in a household that that is not impoverished, and it has to do with parent time and parent resources and so on to be providing the kinds of safety, security, and sort of intellectual experiences for the kids that you, as a middle-class parent, take it as a matter of course that you have to provide for your kid. You're not going to neglect, for example, reading to your kid at home. But if you're absolutely strapped in terms of economics and you're working two jobs and so is your spouse and so forth and so on, some things slip between the cracks. So families that are under economic stress tend to provide... Less of what kids need in order to succeed in school. So let me just start with that point, because um, it also is true that some schools are better than others at responding to that reality. Being black or being poor or being white poor doesn't by itself cause you to perform poorly in schools. We have too much evidence to the contrary of that. But some schools are better able than others to respond to kids who aren't ready for school. And Chicago Public Schools, in fact, has demonstrated its ability over the last 15 years to be an outlier, not just in Illinois, but nationally, in its ability to respond to kids who come to school not school ready. Now, there's another cultural thing there that has to be said, which is that these kids and their families at home are in no way labeled as slow or in no way uh, in any way deficient by some family standard. But the school does establish these cultural standards that are, in fact, middle class white standards for what counts as success in school. So if your parents are white teachers, for example, I'm using that because my parents were both white teachers. By the time I get to school, I'm prepared for what the school rewards, Right. I have the cultural capital and the social capital. But if you come from a low income family, white, black, Hispanic or other, it's tougher for you to have that cultural capital that the school is going to label as successful, whether that's linguistic and whether it's reading readiness or mathematical or whatever.
1: What is that white versus black or Hispanic or Asian cultural capital that gets evaluated as success or failure?
0: Yeah, let's start with language development you get good at what you're familiar with and a kid who grows up in a household in which standard english is spoken by both parents that's the only thing they know how to speak and then he gets to school and finds out that all the textbooks are written in standard english and the standardized tests are in standard english and the classroom discourse is standard english that stuff comes real easily in other words that kid has an ear for standard english Kid doesn't even need to learn the grammar rules because he knows what sounds right and what doesn't in right. standard Because the only thing he knows is what sounds right. A kid who grows up in a, a community that, because of racism and segregation, is a segregated African American community is not growing up hearing standard English. He's growing up hearing something very, very different. And that very, very different thing that he hears does, in fact, have a complex linguistic and phonemic system that is consistent from Birmingham to Watts to Cleveland to New York City, but it's not what's rewarded in school. And so that kid is hearing a different language spoken in the school, basically, a different dialect than what he grows up learning. On top of that, He has teachers who may be white, may be black, making judgments about his academic ability on the basis of how he talks. And that kid's talking a language that's not school language. You're quite familiar, for example, with the fact that kids from a a given neighborhood will say something like athlete instead of athlete. That's not because that kid's not bright. That's because that's how it's pronounced in that neighborhood. Right. Right. But that's wrong in school. And when that kid sees a spelling that is athlete, that's not a very familiar spelling to that kid. It's not enough to make a kid dysfunctional and helpless in school. It's just enough to make a difference in that kid's ability to perform at high levels right. versus not right. so high level. Part of it is you're going to make sure that you give certain kinds of mathematical learning to your kids at home. I'm watching it with my grandkids right now. Their, their parents are making sure that they're doing certain kinds of things at home in terms of counting activities, in terms of number activities and so on. When that kid gets to school, that kid's going to be deemed smart (laughs) simply because of that kid's experience. Again, if you're a single parent family, which a whole lot of kids come from that parent, in general, is going to have less time to do that kind of stuff with a kid. And so when you talk about cultural capital, the kid who comes to school with four or five years of nurturing around this stuff already, he's got four or five years of practice. The research shows that practice makes a huge difference. That's what a construct like cultural capital is about.
1: At the end of the day, whether we want to admit to it or not, we are evaluated what success looks like in the white world. That's right. Eventually, we got to get there. You don't want to strip someone down and make them who they are not, but they at least have to do this to be successful.
0: Yeah, black parents want their kids to have a
1: shot at a fulfilling life,
0: and they're not going to have that shot unless they can show some success by what are basically middle-class black standards, yeah. unless you become a rap artist or you know, something like right. that. But How do the schools
1: respond to, respond to that and address that?
0: We are so much smarter about this than we were even a dozen years ago. The research on this is pretty exciting, so I'll say a couple of things about it. One of the best pieces of research, or best research agendas, actually started out in the 70s. You know this sort of theory that says fundamentally it's the neighborhood that determines student learning outcomes. If a kid comes from the right neighborhood, the chances are that kid's going to do well. If the kid comes from the wrong neighborhood, the kid comes from North Lawndale, that kid's chances of graduating from Harvard are a whole lot less than if a kid comes from Winnetka, just flat out statistically. Yes, absolutely. And so there was this strongly held belief that, in fact, Harvard researchers, Colm and Jenks, J-E-N-C-K-S, argued that the power of the environment was so great that there was very little that schools could do to overcome that power. And statistically, you could almost believe that, because if a kid comes from a poor neighborhood, regardless Mm -hmm. of ethnicity, the chances of kids in that neighborhood performing at high levels are just really slim. So it makes you think that schools fundamentally don't matter. At the same time, in the 70s, another guy, an African-American guy, Ron Edmonds. Edmonds started to study exceptional schools. He started to study schools that didn't fit that rule. Schools where low income kids, regardless of ethnicity, actually are performing at high levels because he wanted to figure out what the heck is going on in these places that we could learn from. And he's the one that has this terrific quote. And he says, how many schools do you need to see in which poor children perform at high academic levels before you believe that all poor children can do so? And then he goes on to say, I suggest if you need to see more than one such example, you have your own reasons for believing poor
1: kids can't succeed. In other words, you see it once and you go, wait a minute. What I believe he's saying is that if that's successful because poverty has such an impact, if you see one school, that should be enough proof because poverty is such a such a big indicator of long term success. If you see one go to that school figure out what the sauce is that's and right it.
0: yeah and his argument was that should be enough proof right there that the problem isn't with the kid one of the things i i say now is that now it's very clear the science is clear the learning problem is not with the children right it's how we respond to the kids that are coming into the building this line of research has actually continued over the last 40 years and the most influential piece done was done in 2010 which is awfully recent but it was done here at University of Chicago by Tony Breik and his team. And what they began to do was to notice that two schools with the very same demographics of kids could be performing at dramatically different levels, that in fact the demographic background of the kids doesn't determine the outcomes. And so what they did was they picked up on Edmund's thesis that there are some things that are different in these schools, and they went after it. And what they did was end up writing a book after a 19-year longitudinal study of these schools in which they looked at 100 schools at different performance levels with matched socioeconomic and demographic backgrounds for the kids. And what they found was that there are about five variables that are powerfully determinant of whether a school can respond well to the kids that come in the door. And number one of those five variables was the quality of school leadership. That a school that is not led well cannot act coherently enough to respond to the kids that are coming in the door. That if a school is poorly led, the chief determinants of student outcomes are simply going to be socioeconomic status, flat out. And in fact, to this day, over all across America, that's the overwhelming determinant to this moment of student learning outcomes wow. is that SES. Schools that succeed... Are schools that are committed first and foremost to teacher learning? Because most teachers cannot learn what they need to learn in a college of education, which is a very weak treatment. I mean, this is basically one semester of student teaching. You cannot get good at anything that's complicated in one semester. I don't care if it's playing sports. It's playing a guitar. You cannot get good in one semester at the level you need to be for the complexity of the problems in front of you, right? On the other hand, teachers who are novices who come out, I don't care if you come out of Teach for America or you come out of the best teacher ed program in the country, you're a novice teacher when you start in the classroom. Right, right. Teachers who are novices actually can learn to get good at this. If the principal's commitment is to creating an adult learning climate, so that it's safe for teachers to learn and get better. And the commitment of the whole school is every teacher's practice has to change. Because if your practice doesn't change, we will get the same results next year that we're getting this year, and these results aren't good enough. So that's what a school looks like. And by the way, we can now point to more of them in Chicago than you can find in the rest of the state. Because we've started to build a culture in Chicago, partly based on Tony Breik's research, partly based on our pushing very hard on the fact that the school building leader is the true agent of change here. And if you don't have an agent of change as a building leader, you won't get change. You won't get improvement. So these are the kind of things that I wouldn't have been able to say these things 15 years ago, quite honestly. And I know that for sure because I was trying to do this program 15 years ago.
1: (laughs) Oh, right. What changed or what were the hurdles back then?
0: There are two or three things that were instrumental in making us a different and more successful program now than we were when we started 15 years ago. One of them is the research and how much the research informs us with respect to helping principals become folks who can honestly be expected to improve student learning as opposed to maybe it'll happen. This points to a second big variable, and I'll talk about the interplay between these two variables. One of the variables is the quality of research that informed us how is it that principals do this. Principals don't teach kids in classes, so what does a principal have to do to actually elevate student performance throughout an entire school we know a lot more about that than we did 15 years ago but the other thing that goes with that that interacts with it is a set of expectations for principals that's actually changed nationwide and certainly here in Chicago over the last two decades my father was a school principal down in Springfield and he likes to say no one ever expected me to improve student learning that wasn't a part of my job description Nowadays, if a principal doesn't improve student learning in three or four years, that principal probably is in trouble for keeping his or her job. At least that's true in Chicago, and it's increasingly true in other places as well. So we actually do expect principals to improve student learning, and that's partly a result of the fact, and this is captured in the title of No Child Left Behind, it's partly a result of the fact that we no longer think it's okay for poor kids not to do well in school, which we used to think was kind of an inevitability. Because the data were so clear that poor kids did poorly in school, we didn't dispute the fact that a few exceptional poor kids could succeed. Everybody knows that's true. And that, in fact, gave support to the American myth of equal opportunity for all. Of course there's equal opportunity for all. Look, there's some poor kids, there's some black kids who are from poor backgrounds. They succeeded that shows you that, in fact, the system isn't stacked, that we have equal right. opportunity, that right. if a kid is talented enough, the kid can make it. But what that does is it obscures systemic realities that mm-hmm. keep the majority of low-income kids, regardless of ethnicity, in the back of the bus. So once we started to realize, wait a minute, if most kids aren't succeeding, it probably is a problem with what we're doing not a problem with those kids and so that expectation that quote all kids can succeed no child should be left behind gave rise to the view well if that's true schools are going to have to be led differently than they're currently being led so what you have is a a research base that's growing That's informing our ability to respond to a sort of a cultural shift that was beginning to raise expectations for all kids. Thirdly, what I would say, and why we're better at this now than we were 15 years old, can't be explained without this, is we've just been hammering at it for 15 years harder than any other program in the country has. And everybody knows that. And everybody knows we've been hammering at it harder. And the reason that we're ahead of any other program right now in our ability to produce these kinds of principles is simply because we've been working at it If you work at something really hard, you're going to learn stuff that you wouldn't otherwise learn. And so we've learned a lot about working with people to make them better principles that we just didn't know 15 years ago. The human being is a phenomenal learning machine, is what I've learned. And the more you focus on something and stick with it in an intentional way, what what, uh, Eric Anders calls deliberate practice. Our practice has been very deliberate. Let me say a word about that because it's central to how we see our work. By deliberate practice, we mean we collect data on what we do and what it produces. And we look, for example, at, okay, if these were our metrics for selecting people into the program, how did that pay off over a 10-year period? Did the people that we ranked at the very top of each incoming class did they turn out to be the best principles or not? Because if they didn't, then there's something wrong with our metrics. So what we do is we really try to implement what we call cycles of inquiry. We're constantly trying to collect information on what we're doing and then hold that information up to ourselves and say, What does this prove about us? What does this prove about our success? What does this mean we need to learn? Now, that's really no different from stuff that's been going on in in industry for quite some time. You know, quality circles and so on. But the truth is it hasn't been applied the way it ought to be to education. And we're doing it simply so we can do a better job next year than we're doing this year.
1: You brought up this point of, well, there's equality. See, there's a person like Farah that did it. That made it. That made it. And... That conversation always puts me in an awkward position.
0: Sure it does. Sure it does. Yeah.
1: Because obviously I'm black, and by certain people's standards, I did make it. I don't, I don't know what that really – But you know what people mean by that. I do know what people yeah. mean by that. Yeah. And, but then it also bothers me. I'm happy about going to University of Illinois. I'm happy about graduating from the business school and then going to get my MBA. I'm happy about all those things. I'm happy that I had Support and no distractions to get to that point because we can get very distracted. You just lose focus and you get caught up in all these things that are going on, which happen to a lot of people in all communities, but specifically our com- my community. But it hurts me because my success makes people think that it's easy for everybody, and I'm like, no, it's not. It's hard to describe what you do not live and what you don't experience. That I was sheltered to a, to a certain degree by my family and my friends, and protected because they saw something in me. But it didn't mean that those my family members or my friends did make some of those same mistakes that led to them not being successful, right? By some standard, these people said, "Oh, he's got something. Let's keep him away from the gangs. Let's make sure he gets home at night at a certain time that he doesn't do these things." But there's a whole bunch of people in that community that live by the standard and have already kind of either given up or the system has given up on them and they don't have that same opportunity. And it's more of that than the example of me getting out, you know what I mean, or being successful. Like, I personally don't think I've made it. That's probably what keeps pushing me. But there are a lot of people that don't even think they have a chance to make it, and they're just like, this is what I'm going to do. And I find that to be far more true in neighborhoods like I grew up in North Lawndale and of poor white people in in rural environments.
0: Yeah, we have a tendency in our culture, you know, the rugged individualism that is central to American oh, culture. Pull yourself up by
1: the bootstrap. That's right. And Some it's, people don't have boots. No, that's <laughs> right. <laughs> that's
0: exactly right. And, and we have a tendency to think about ter- things in individual terms instead of in systemic or structural terms. Mm-hmm. And so when you make it, we know what people mean by that, yep. I mean you're a college graduate you've got your own house, you know you've got a a stable family life and got a good job. Then people say, "See that proves the system in fact must be fair because this guy wasn't held back, and if other people were held back, that's their problem i mean in other words, they could have done what farad did they, yeah. so in a sense, your success is actually used to
1: justify i know it's the same principle." that people give when they say, see, we're not racist. We had Obama. It's very evident for anybody with a tenth of a brain to see that, like, no, that was an exception. And what we're experiencing is kind of a backlash potentially to that, and that that stuff, it just didn't happen overnight. This stuff has been there. It's systemic to the point where when somebody in leadership does something or says something that is very racist, the system goes, ooh, that person messed up. We're not really racist. like, no, we are. We need to acknowledge it. Like I can say, for example, I am sexist. I'm a privileged male. The world is male-dominated. It also happens to be, I believe, white male-dominated. But I'm also a male, right? So I have some privilege in that. And because of that, there is probably some inherent sexism. We all have it, and we have to curb it I'm better than most probably because I was raised by seven women. I have two girls, and I'm forced to see it every day. You're surrounded like yourself by a whole bunch of strong women. But we use these things that are truly exceptions or extremes. Having a black president for the first time in over 200 years, that's an extreme exception. It doesn't mean that systemic stuff doesn't exist. It's a
0: great example of how people want to use the individual to erase the system. To say that we were in a post-racial America because Barack Obama became president was just sheer lunacy. You have to ignore almost all the evidence in front of you to say something like that. And the other thing, Dave Chappelle made a remark the other night on a talk show. He said that, you know, the despair that people are feeling over the Trump administration. He said, look, black people go through this all the time. Every time you think you've made a step forward, he said, you find yourself being dragged back. And he said, so we made a step forward with Barack Obama. He said, but we're being dragged back right now. I'm just paraphrasing what he said. He said, it's the traction thing. He used his hands to illustrate, you know, sort of moving forward, but the traction pulling you back. A different way to say that is when we do have significant social gains, there's typically a backlash to that. Always. So what you see in Reconstruction, for example, was an effort by legal measures to try to rectify centuries of oppression of blacks in the South. And then what you saw immediately after Reconstruction was, quote, redemption, where the South wanted to reestablish what was actually threatened by the Civil War. Right. And we're living with that right to this very moment, obviously, right? I'll give you another one. On the radio today, Trump has written an executive order to eliminate trans people being in the military. I saw that, And this is a counter-movement, of course, to Barack Obama's saying trans people can serve. So history is not linear. And of course, probably the single most quoted remark from Martin Luther King on this, and I, I actually buy this because I think history empirically bears this out. This is this great remark he made that the, the arc of history is long but it bends toward justice and this idea that it takes a long time for real cultural change to take place but on the other hand it was in my grandmother's lifetime that women in america could not vote it was in my lifetime that black people in america could not vote right these are significant changes now are there counter movements against those kinds of things that attempt to undo them and attempt to undermine them Absolutely, there are. But it doesn't change the fact that those two changes, for example, are big-time changes.
1: I want to talk about the reconstruction piece. Sure, yeah. When I get through with the thought, it's going to come back to education. The slogan, Make America Great, again, when it first came out. And I go, okay, (laughs) what does that really mean? What does that mean for me as a black person in America? I just started to break it down with people I know, whether they're white or black. I say. Well, if he's talking about 10 years ago, my life is better than it was now than it was 10 years ago. So that wasn't great. So let's go back to the 90s when I was growing up. My life is better now. My life as a human and as a black man is better now than it was in the 90s, right? With the tail end of the crack cocaine epidemic, the struggle in schools, the whole bunch of gang stuff going on. And I'm not even going to get into how we call this the crack cocaine epidemic but it's a opioid crisis that's the whole (laughs) the label them two different things and i go well let's go back to the 70s and i keep going back decade by decade by decade and like okay a person like me when was it better for and i got to this point where i said the best time since america's been around for me and my people was reconstruction when the government literally stepped in and said we're going to do these things we're going to have at least this amount of black elected officials. We're going to educate these folks. We're going to try to right the wrong. I'm like, is that what he's talking about? (laughs) But I know he's not talking about that. He's talking about something else, and he's really not, he wasn't really speaking to me. Like, we're going to make America great again for you. I go back to the Reconstruction in that a lot of the stuff that we're having problems with now that's relevant, the statues and the the neo-nazis and the confederate flags is what i think a lot of people don't realize is that the confederate flag was pretty much dead at the civil war and i learned this at at uic from dr anderson who you know his class on race and ethnicity and i took another business law class different professor but he was trying to get the state of south carolina to remove the confederate flag from a business perspective because but the confederate flag was dead it was absolutely dead reconstruction came and there are white people who are like, this sucks. Equality is going backwards for me and us and people like us. So we need to do something about it. So then the Confederate flag came back and it didn't represent the Southern War. It also represented this idea like we're going to return the South to white men. And then they even whitewashed, like covered up the Civil War. And like the Civil War wasn't about slavery. It was about our way of life they went on a nice little marketing campaign and that's the confederate flag that we have to this day not the battle flag but that's the flag that we have that is for white people returning the south to the white people i don't know if this was like four or five years ago that i read something but there was study that education in the south is behind its other regional counterparts stemming from this not letting Reconstruction go through the full process.
0: The best authority in America, and that is Jim Anderson, the guy you're talking about. His uh, book called Education of Blacks After the Civil War won a National Book Award from American Ed Research Association. And Anderson's reputation was established with that book.
1: I was a student. uh,
0: So you're right. I mean, the impression that you got is what he argues in the book. And he shows county by county in southern states what measures were taken to try to, in fact, undermine the education of African Americans budgetarily, building structure-wise and everything. And the other thing he shows is that the myth of the northern carpetbaggers going to the South to educate blacks for democracy turns out to be completely wrong, Mm. that the people most responsible for creating educational structures for blacks were black people themselves. There were enough educated blacks to be able to create through churches, to create through Saturday classes, to create through whatever means necessary. Black people were becoming educated because of their own agency after the Civil War. But boy, it was enormously uphill because during uh, slavery, it was actually illegal for blacks to become educated right. and to go to school. And those who did were exceptions rather than the rule. The worst states for underprivileged children is on one of these websites that likes to do lists, right? And southern states come out really difficult on that list. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, Mississippi to this moment is a tough place uh, to be anybody. Health, education. Across the board, yeah. Yeah. So you're right. The proscriptions against black people becoming educated in the South were lifted during Reconstruction Mm -hmm. And in a sense, with segregation post-Reconstruction, the quote, redemption period, the facilities for black people to become educated were abysmal throughout the entire Jim Crow period. And it's interesting. Anderson, we did a a video broadcast for 90 Minutes for Chicago Bar Association. And Charles Payne from University of Chicago was on that video, as well as Linda Darling-Hammond. I was the moderator for this panel discussion about inequality in American education. But we started the video with an interview with Jim Anderson that was Mm. folded into them. And Anderson begins by saying something that's relevant to what you said a few minutes ago. He said, what people need to understand is there never was a golden age in American education where everybody was entitled to and received a good education. That has never been the case. So when people talk about returning to a better age of education, the good old days, it never existed. And Make America Great Again is simply a feel-good slogan that actually has no literal translation other than we need to return to a time when basically white oppression was unchallenged. So it is clear that that's another dog whistle expression, Make America Great Again. And, And a woman from the western suburbs was interviewed the day after, it was actually during the election night, um, when it was clear that Trump was going to win the election. And she said she was in a bar, white woman, middle-aged woman, and she said, we're going to take our country back again. And again, that's that's coded language. Take it back from whom, right? I'm always curious What's going on
1: there, yeah. right? And for me, it's not unclear at all what's going on there. It kind of shocks the senses that people can talk that way. It shocks me even more that a lot of times in the circles I roll in, I hear something, I look around the room, and I'm the only one reacting. Even amongst like self proclaimed liberal thinking, acting people, they're like, that woman's kind of crazy. But I'm like, no, 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 no. It's not just crazy. This is very bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. You just happen to belong into the group that America is supposed to be returned to. That's the troubling part with all of this stuff that's going on right now, is that I find myself looking around being like, These are people who are supposed to be allies, but they don't even get it yet.
0: You can relate to this as a person of male privilege. There's an expression that that runs, privilege is invisible to the privileged. And sometimes your male privilege has been invisible to you. I I have no doubt about that.
1: I know this for a fact because in high school, a teacher pulled me inside and he goes, you're very bright, you're very smart, you're an athlete, you're respected. But some of the things you say, and it seems like they're unintentional, Some of the things you say can come across the wrong way. Here's a book I need you to read. And he gave me a book called uh, Reviving Ophelia. No kidding. And that book changed. That person did you a favor. Oh, a huge, huge favor. Yeah. yeah. I was like, oh, shit. (laughs) Like, I may not be experiencing certain things as a woman, but it's my responsibility to recognize and understand that journey that that person is on and approach them with their healthy respect, not out of pity, but like there's a lot of things going on that males contribute to that are making it very difficult for this person.
0: Your ear, for certain things that would be offensive to some women, your ear would not be as sharp as their ear would be to some things that might get said in the group. A- absolutely. And similarly... This is true of white privilege all the time. So the thing that you're looking around and you're going, how come nobody else is reacting to this? I can say as a white person that sometimes I'm just not hearing the same thing that you're hearing and you're picking up on stuff
1: that I'm just not picking up on. It also taught me a lesson. Like you were experiencing your own type of oppression. And when you see someone else experiencing a different type, it's your responsibility to notice it because you yourself are going through this in in a different capacity. So, excuse my language, you need to wake the fuck up. First of all, it's not just you. Two, when you realize that it's other people, you need to stand up and say something and make sure that it doesn't continue to perpetuate itself. When he gave me that book, I was 16, 17. And I actually read it. I actually keep it, right? One, as a reminder, but then two, like when I feel like I miss something, I go back and I read this stuff. And it's it's some pretty heavy stuff in there for a 17-year-old.
0: Yeah, this is playing itself out right now in the NFL in an interesting way. There are black players now that are taking a knee. I don't know if you heard this piece on the radio today about how some white players are feeling very uncomfortable about what's their role in this. Mm -hmm. Should they take a knee too? One white player for, it wasn't New England, I can't remember what, put his hand on the shoulder of a black teammate taking a knee, and he was trying to express solidarity, but one African-American commentator said, come on, man, that's really minimal. Just as you said, it's up to males in some cases to really speak out. It's similarly the case that there is a responsibility among white people to recognize that it's not somebody else's fight here this is about our right. culture right and as a white person i think that there are many places where i could have stood up or said something yep. and didn't you know i'm right. thinking and eh, i'm not comfortable with that or this isn't my fight right yep. now you know that kind of thing and yeah. and that's a wrong attitude as this commentator was pointing out today White oppression is a white created problem here. Right, right. (laughs) And and whites have to take responsibility for undoing Yeah. Yeah. There's a book out that's been out for a number of years now by Francis Kendall. It's called Understanding White Privilege. And I make my students read this, doctoral students, and the students of color don't find it that interesting. Honestly, because yeah. there's pretty much nothing new for them. Right. In there. The white students are fascinated with it. They see themselves there, right? And they're going, holy cow. Yeah. Wow, this is me, you know? And for the black students and the brown students, they're basically saying, come on, didn't you know this? Right. You know, how could yeah. you not know this? Right. And
1: again, it's that invisibility of privilege to the privilege. Recently, I, I stumbled upon something. It was a podcast. It was talking a little bit about this. They asked a black person, how does it feel to be black? What does it mean to be black in America? They can talk to you about this and this and the oppression and they do the same thing to white person. What does it mean to be white? And it was like, what do you mean? Because it's not relative to anything. You don't walk into a room and be like, oh, there's my whiteness, you know? <laughs> like, I got I to gotta, I gotta package this or baggage this up some kind of way. That's right. But if you yeah. ask a black person or if you ask a female, what is it like being a woman that's something that has to be recognized. We can talk about race as a construct. It's made up. Well, there's a reality to this construct, that people behave, and they have lessons learned. You just don't drop that stuff just because we've identified race as a construct, we need to move on. There's history behind being black or being white. Like If I tell someone, guess what, African-Americans weren't allowed to live on campus at University of Illinois, Urbana, Champaign until the 50s or 60s. Like, what? But that has an impact on you as a student. When you can attend this university, but you can't live on campus. You can't have a student experience. Right. That stuff is passed on generation to generation. You just can't get rid of that overnight. Or the fact that my grandparents or my great-grandparents weren't allowed to read. You can't deny that that had impact on how the future generation performs in education or in business or in, these, in what we call the real world. It has an impact Sure. when generation after generation after generation after generation. How do you break that cycle? if you can talk a little bit about what your program does and then what your program does to advocate breaking that cycle.
0: Sure. There are those who would like to think that schools can be significant agents of social change. John Dewey pointed out about 80 years ago that schools are actually very weak agents for changing the real fundamental structures of society. What schools can do is they can be allies of certain kinds of movements within society that are pointing us in a more democratic direction, in directions of greater equality. But for just to exaggerate that a little bit, there are people going to teaching, for example, because they believe in social justice and they're going to be agents of change. But they get very frustrated when they realize they can't end capitalism as we know it from the front of a fourth grade classroom, or they can't end racism as we know it, you know, in the elementary school, or they can't end sexism. I mean, these things are so deeply rooted in our culture. But what you can do is you can equip young people not to be deeply damaged by those things. You can equip young people to lead lives that are fulfilling, even in a society it's fundamentally racist, which ours is. It will be fundamentally racist when you and I die. On the other hand, it can be a different society than it is now in terms of the opportunities it provides a much broader swath of people within that society. So I think that a couple of things are true. I mean, so what do we do? On the one hand, one of the things we try to do is equip Charles Payne, the scholar from University of Chicago has a nice piece out called Still Crazy After All These Years. And on the first page, he says, schools that can't talk about race can't talk about a lot of important things. So what you said about race is is absolutely true. On the one hand, it's a bogus biological concept. It does not have any foundation in biology or genetics. On the other hand, race is a deeply powerful social construct. There's a California newsreels video that's called Race, the Future of an Illusion, so that race is actually a social construction. You and I might be closer in DNA, for example, than I am to the next white person we find on the street. Our DNA could actually be much closer than, because, in fact, the origins of race are not fundamentally biological origins. Our, our differences are not fundamentally biological. Our differences are how society constructs the differences that we have. But as you said, that doesn't mean race doesn't exist. It exists so deeply that it leads to life and death for people all the time, right? I mean, somebody held up a sign a few days ago. I saw it on TV. It was an older white guy. And the sign was, police aren't shooting older white men in the street. So who are they shooting in the street, right? And that's about race. And it's about how race is constructed. So what we try to do is to mitigate the educational consequences of racism as much as we can. If we can in fact equip third grade kids to read at grade level, and we know how to do this, if we can do that, that means the chances that those kids are gonna drop out of high school are dramatically cut. Right. There's going to be an announcement tomorrow that our principal at Orr High School, astonishingly, Orr, which is one of the lowest performing schools in the history of Chicago, Orr High School on the west side, just won the state basketball championship last year. Mm -hmm. She's going to get some recognition, that principal of ours, because Orr had the highest improvements of freshmen on track in the entire city last year, and the data just coming out. Now, so what? Well, the so what is that, The correlation between a high school with freshmen who are on track to graduate and actually graduating those kids is extraordinarily high. Mm. And fortunately, University of Chicago did that research to show us that. My job is to take that little piece of research and turn it into action. So this principal made sure that almost all of her freshmen at a higher level than ever before were on track to graduate. That means that the chances are those kids are going to graduate. If a young black person in Chicago doesn't graduate high school, their life chances are extraordinarily poor. The options for them are really, really limited. If those kids can graduate high school and get into community colleges and colleges, it opens up life chances for them that are dramatically different than what they had. So what we try to do is to train principals who do the things that are necessary to ensure the academic and social and emotional success for kids that gives them different life chances than what they would otherwise have. Right. Now, I'll tell you something we haven't tackled yet, but I'll just throw it out there in case you want to talk about it later, but that is that it's pretty clear that school failure and gang membership are correlated. That is to say that kids who are really succeeding in schools mm-hmm are less likely to get deeply involved in gang activity than Mm -hmm. kids who aren't. So schools could play a more intentional role in the whole issue of youth violence in Chicago than they're currently playing. I don't know how to do it just yet, but as I say, we're in this for the long haul, right? And it seems to me that part of the formula here is, you try to ensure success for kids in school, not failure. School for low-income kids should not be based on a failure metric. It should be based on how do we ensure that these kids are finding school to be a rewarding and success-oriented experience. Yeah, It's in our DNA as a species that if we fail at something, we give up on it. Our survival is dependent upon that. Even an animal, if it can't open a cage to get at the food, will give up on that because the animal can't afford to starve by opening up an impossible. In other words, it's wired into our DNA that we quit what we don't succeed at. You follow what I'm saying? here? Mm-hmm. If you create enough failure experiences for kids in school, they will quit. And that's because they are intelligent human beings, right? You don't keep trying to do something that keeps slapping you in the face. So what, what we train our principals to do, for example, is to create as much success for these kids as possible. So school becomes a place that's rewarding, not a place that they hate, not a place that they want to get out of. Those are just some examples.
1: When I attended high school with your daughter, I don't know if people recognized it at the time, but Oak Park, the area had a huge gang problem when I was there in 94 and 97. Huge. There are several of my classmates that die from in Oak Park from gang violence. I was not aware of that. And so the statement that you made about success and gang membership, our class started, and there probably was some attrition and people left, but our class started as big as 900, and then it graduated like 700 and some and some change. A person who helped me go to college with a scholarship from Urban Bankers Forum of Chicago, he's now running a barbecue joint in Austin. And he, he hires former felons. He gets funds from Aramark in the city to help with his cool. program. It's Ben's Barbecue. His son went to Oak Park, Tyrone Weidman Sr. is his name. And we were having a conversation because I was in Oak Park, and I drove by, and I just wanted to catch up and talk to him. And he just told me about this program. And he said, I'm trying to understand how I can help the people that are working here well before they get here. And he goes, I don't have the narrative or the conversation you and I can talk about this. We get it, right, because we kind of speak this language, you know, and we understand that this is the statistics, this is what you're trying to do, you're teaching principles, But what he's trying to do is actually take that and have a conversation with that 12-, 13-, 14-year-old from that perspective. And I wonder, have you thought about that piece? Because we talked a little bit about the pre-K, third grade. You talked about high school and staying on track. Is that principle, at or having that conversation? Because if that conversation to keep those kids from being distracted can be had more often, in a way that they understand it, because this guy is really successful at what he's doing, but he's like, I could probably help more people if I can explain this to them what you're talking about at twelve and thirteen but in a way that they can understand it. Because sometimes even we can't reach them. We're not a part of the world. He's a successful That's banker. Right. Yeah, <laughs> I've gone on what people say. I've made it. I'm not in that world. I look like them. As far as they're concerned, you don't get it. Right. First of all,
0: there's an extremely high correlation between illiteracy and imprisonment in this country. People that don't learn to read are far more likely to end up in the court system than people who can read well. And you can unpack all kinds of reasons for that. But the truth is, you've got to create positive options for people. And if school is an experience of cutting my options down, you know, of eliminating, kicking me out of school, for example. I mean, so there's all kind of things a school can do so it doesn't lose kids. And you're right to point to those ages of 12 and 13. So, I mean, these are the points at which kids are starting to decide whose side am I on, who's on my side, right? I mean, identity formation is huge around that time. And it becomes critical for this is one of the reasons, by the way, that athletic coaches in schools can be so influential with kids might be the one thing that makes a kid feel like I am somebody. And it might Mm -hmm. be the one thing that gives a kid some sense of hope that if I stay with this, it's a better option than if I go out there. So I think that one of the things that schools can do first and foremost is to actually equip kids to succeed in more ways than just going out on the street. One of the things that I did as part of my own development was I became a head of an alternative school for adjudicated Cook County juveniles back in the 70s, about 75, 76. And I was working with this one young Hispanic man, Eddie Eduardo, and he had gotten into the court system for breaking and entering. I said, don't you see that this leads to your going to jail? and It leads to you being stopped and moving forward in life. You know what And Eddie said, "Now, what you don't understand is in my neighborhood, the people who have the cars, the people who have the jewelry, the Mm -hmm. people who have the houses, those are all people who got it by crime. He said, if you end up having to do a little time, he said, that's just, and he used this term, he said, that's just an occupational hazard. He said, there's nobody in my neighborhood that I know of who made it by going to school and succeeding in school. Right, He's making a rational choice here. And what I'm saying is that it is entirely possible. And we're witnessing this. This mm-hmm. isn't just a pipe dream. We're witnessing yeah. this. You can, in fact, create very, very live, real concrete options for kids that make those other options less attractive.
1: They make that same point in Gang Leader for a Day. I don't know if you read that. No, I didn't. Do you remember the Freakonomics book? Yeah, Have you sure. read that? There was one where they pull from a study about a sociologist from the University of Chicago that went to spend some time with the Robert Taylor Homes. They got all of the bookkeeping from the gang leader to see how much they made. And Freakonomics, like, well, if you're a gang leader, you don't really make that much money. And it was making an argument that you could work a double shift at McDonald's mm-hmm, mm-hmm. with less risk and yeah. still make more money than a gang leader. Right. That research came from this book. Interesting. sociologists sociologist went yeah. in. And the argument from the book is, that's all they see. If all you see, that's what success looks like. You want to be hood rich. Like, this is what I want to do. I'm going to be carrying thousands of dollars, even though I have to give 18 or 1900 away because it's not mine. I have access to this, and this is what success can look like. But there's only a few people that make it to that level of being like independently wealthy, and it carries a whole bunch of risk as yeah, far as yeah. death and being in jail. So when you really break it down, I can understand that those aren't good options. I have a better chance of being an NBA basketball player than I do of being a multimillionaire from selling drugs or being in a gang. That's very, I can understand that. And these folks, but that's all they see. Yeah, Like, oh, that's possible.
0: They don't see it as remotely realistic that they're going to get into a college, graduate from college, mm-hmm. and then be a professional. So whatever it was that, Pulled things together for you as a kid from North Lawndale. For me, schools are in a unique and powerful position to do that for most all kids. Absolutely. That's why I made the decision that I made to commit myself to this kind of work. And once I got in the field of education, then the question was... How do you make schools produce the results that they're not producing? Because schools are in a position to do this. But by and large, schools do not make a difference in kids' lives in terms of those socioeconomic status predictors. And yet what we're finding is that using a really aggressive training program for principals... Interestingly enough, you can't do this with a random sampling of people off the street. In other words, you can't just pick a bunch of people and say, come to my program. I will turn you into a change agent. I mean, it's a little bit like the NBA or a little bit like medical school. you got to start with people who really want to do this kind of work. Will it be the first to admit that your program, its success is deeply dependent on how smart you are on draft day? The truth is we have a much higher success percentage than Chicago Bears do. I mean, they're just really bad at picking talent. And in fact, it turns out that NFL teams are not very good at picking talent because the challenges of success in the NFL are so extraordinary that most draft picks don't pan out in the NFL. Well, we're doing a lot better than that, but we don't win 100% of the time. I mean, I can't say that
1: 100%
0: of the people that come through my program are doing what this young woman is doing at or or doing what the woman is doing at Back of the Arts High School.
1: But what I want to know is over the 15 years, what are some things that you were doing that you realized through the numbers, the stats, experience that that just wasn't working? I need to stop doing this. <laughs> I'm sorry to say I have several examples, but here, <laughs> here's a vivid one. Even though
0: after seven years we had produced over 50 principals that were actually making a dent in schools, Only two of them had been able to finish the doctorate. And the program was set up so that after you achieved the principalship, you would continue on. And by getting additional training and additional intensive leadership coaching for three years to improve your practice, that you would write this up and get a doctorate at the end of five years. After seven years, only two people had finished. And we knew we had a problem on our hands. Eight years, four people had finished. We dramatically redesigned how we created the end game for the program, building much more of the doctoral dissertation writing into program coursework itself. And part of the reason for this is the following. Even on a regular Ph.D. program where people aren't working full time out in the world, the completion ratio of Ph.D.s across all subject matters in America is slightly over 50 percent in 10 years. And we don't even have the data on the other 45%, actually. After 10 years, we lose the data on these folks. We don't know if they ever come back to finish. They don't. You know, most of them don't, and so mm-hmm. forth. If you're trying to transform a school culture and climate and try to finish your, your doctorate, that means the completion chances are even less than that. So what we did is we built into their actual coursework the steps of completing a dissertation. The coursework runs out, and now... Typically, they're completing their thesis in less than a year after the end of the coursework. But we've built in our leadership coaching so that they have much greater support and scaffolding than ever before. And it's jacked up our completion rate dramatically. So in the last five years, we're now up to 80 completers as opposed to four.
1: What's your percentage?
0: It depends on the cohort. In other words, starting with cohort seven, the seventh year of the program, that group now has 100% completion. Oh, wow. And so what we're seeing for courts 8, 9, 10, and so on is they're not there yet mm-hmm. because they haven't been out quite long enough to have that kind of success ratio. Yeah. But it's absolutely rising uh, dramatically. Well, yeah. it can't get much higher than 100. And we sort of think that was an exceptional group, but we're going to try to match it as we go forward.
1: With education, you need years to measure success. Yes, you do, yeah. The past 15 years, Chicago public schools are not where they were where any of us want them to be, but they have made dramatic strides. That's right. In education and the performance of the students, the graduation rate. Yeah. College attendance. Some people believe some things were lax. Some people think that we changed certain measurements to get people there. We made it easier. You know, People cite this whole Derek Rose phenomenon. Let's just get them through and then someone else is probably – but it's been nationally recognized as being a huge success. I can't help but also layer in the development of your program. I don't know if you've run the numbers, the correlation between CPS getting better and your program getting traction.
0: There's a high correlation, but it's more complicated than it might seem. I'll tell you why. At any given moment, only 10% of the principals in CPS are my students, my graduates, right? now. Currently, the chief ed officer is my graduate, and currently the head of language and culture is my graduate, and the head of post-secondary success is my... So we not only have principals, we have people in key other positions in the system as well. Building
1: a strong organization.
0: That's right, building the organization. However, with only 10% of the principals at any given moment coming out of my organization, clearly they couldn't by themselves have had this profound impact on the system that we've seen. So there's something else going on. But the something else that's going on, I believe, has been that we're a part of a systemic movement in CPS that's unmatched anywhere else in the country to foreground the role of principals as the key change agents in schools. CPS has invested about $10 million a year over the last dozen years into creating a reality that they first started under Barbara and Arnie. That's Arnie Duncan when he was the chief executive officer and Barb Rees and Watkins is chief ed officer. They put up a slogan in all the downtown offices and it was the school is the unit of change and the principal is the leader of that change. So yeah, my program is making a contribution, but, New Leaders for New Schools has been as successful, and this is an entrepreneurial organization, has been as successful on a person-per-person basis, and they've actually put more principals into the system than I have, you know, than our program has. But together, New Leaders and UIC have put in more than 300 principals into Chicago's 600-plus schools over the past decade-plus, right? And not only that, but the school system has done something no other major district in the country has done, major or minor to our knowledge. They've created their own bar exam for principals. And what this means is that 60% of the people who have a state principal certificate and apply to be principals in CPS are turned down before they even get an interview with the school. They don't pass the CPS, what's called an eligibility exam. It's mm-hmm. an equivalent of a bar exam for principals. So in other words, they're only dealing with the top 40% of potential applicants. They felt like they had to do this for the following reason. LSCs, local school councils, or each school school board gets to hire the principal. They have an enormous amount of autonomy in doing so. And so the school system thought, my God, these are just community people, you know, coming together. What we have to do is narrow the pool so they can't make any bad mistakes on this.
1: Well, <laughs> wow.
0: Right? I mean, that was what was going on. But what it turned out to do was to have a profound effect on who gets to be a principal at all in the system. So all this to say, I'm really proud of the job my principals are doing. But my principles are part of a larger systemic movement that's really unmatched anywhere else in the country. There's no other city that's made that proportional investment. When I'm out on the stump talking about this and I say that CPS invests $10 million a year, I mean people drop their pencils and they go well that's a deal killer we can never do that that's less than two tenths of one percent of the cps budget in other words it's a tiny fraction and the payoff they're getting for that is enormous you could justify a lot more money than that so other school systems are learning how to foreground and this is starting to happen countrywide are starting to foreground school leadership as a central lever for improving student learning outcomes particularly in low-income neighborhoods
1: when you tell me $10 million, I go, that's a kind of a small amount of money relative to the grand scheme of... CPS has a $6 billion budget. Yeah, If this is working, the stats are there. What is stopping people from just going hardcore and investing in this? I'm saying this. Steve is not saying this, but you got people like Betsy DeVos running around with a billion dollars, and she's getting to do things and foreign policy when she has no experience of success or very limited experience of success and so I get that there's people with a lot of money with a philanthropic spirit that don't know what the hell they're doing and so some of the dollars tend to follow those people what's stopping you and new leaders from like being the de facto sourcing of all principles it's got to be dollars right somebody has to make a commitment to fund these talented individuals to go through the program. And it's probably a capacity issue too.
0: If we can produce 20 principals a year, uh, for example, out of our program, that's a model that's replicable all over America, right? So there are 400 principal vacancies in Illinois a year. Of those, typically 20% are in Chicago. And so you might have 75, 80 vacancies in Chicago. UIC does not need to fill all of Chicago vacancies, nor all the state vacancies. The point of our theory of change is to demonstrate how this can be done so every university can do this. Now, a problem in the theory of change for new leaders is they don't have the infrastructure all over the state to be able to do this, whereas higher ed does. So new leaders is actually beginning to back off on principal preparation because they realize they don't have the infrastructure to replicate this. It costs new money to do this. It costs much less new money to do what we're doing. Because you have the infrastructure. Because the infrastructure is there. The faculty is there. The buildings are there. The programs are there. They have to do it at a higher level, namely site-based intensive site-based training, which does require some new money, but it's not much. In other words, uh, we had AFT and the IEA together, the two biggest teachers unions work with me on costing out what it would take for every program in Illinois to do what we do. And the verdict was, according to the Illinois Business Roundtable who worked on this, it would be a rounding error on the state education budget for every university to do what we do.
1: In Illinois? In Illinois,
0: yeah. So why aren't they doing it? And the answer to that is very similar to the answer, why does Illinois have the most unequal funding system for kids in schools, most unequal school funding system in America? And the answer is, it's not in anybody's interest who has the money, as far as they can tell, to do it any differently. In other words, families with money are getting a good education already, as far as they can tell. Families without money aren't getting a good education, but they don't have the power to do anything about it. The people with the power to do something about it, it's going to take them coming to a new understanding of self-interest. I'll give you a quick example from state funding. I don't know what the new funding bill resolution is going to turn out to be because nobody's revealed it yet. But this is a long-standing problem in Illinois. And when I met with state legislators from the western suburbs and said, look, you guys, this is the most inequitable funding system in, in the U.S., we could fund this more equally and have much greater student learning outcomes than what we're currently having in low-income neighborhoods throughout the state. The response I got uniformly was, the citizens in my constituency are not interested in supporting the education of other people's children. In other words, they viewed it in their self-interest to put their education dollars into their own kids and their own neighborhoods and so forth and not help somebody else. Well, there's no crisis in education among middle class and wealthy people in this country, as far as they can tell, their kids are getting to college and so forth and right. so on. The crisis in education is for the lower half, and those folks don't have the clout or the power. So, at some level, what I've got to keep doing is pushing state boards of education, state legislators, and state universities to say, because those universities have the capacity to do it differently, but it will require new funding to do it differently. Not a lot but enough that it requires them to do business differently. I have an article out, in fact, called Change Agency in Our Own Backyards. So here's another limiting factor. In order for principals to actually create a very different learning outcome for kids, those principals can't just be educators. They have to be change agents. They have to know what it means to change an organization, to change an institution, to change mindsets, to change practices, to change people's routines of collaboration. That requires a change agent, and you can teach people how to do that, and we're demonstrating that every day. The problem is most university faculty are not themselves change agents. They did not get to be professors by being change agents, and so there's an interesting paradox. We could give them the money to be change agents, but the reality is they have no experience at being change agents. They have experience at doing their assignments at a higher level than most people do. And I have experience as a change agent. I've built a team that now has experience as change agents. So that's another limiting factor. It's not as easy to do this. It's not just a question of funding. It's a question of challenging the status quo of universities.
1: When you talk about the inequities within funding education in Illinois, what you mean is if you're in Hensdale, your taxes go into a school district. Yeah. It's left there. It's not collected by Illinois and then distributed equally amongst all the students, which means that if you go with the current model, let's say CPS gets $12,000 per student, but if you go to Winneka, they could get $15,000 per student, spent on education. They may only need 10. They are fine. Whereas if you pull the money together, every student would get the same amount.
0: Yeah. And different states have the different funding formulas. And so in Illinois, the best funded districts have three times the funding per child of the lowest funded districts. And if money didn't matter, you could say to those wealthy districts, say, how about if we take a piece of what you're offering to each of your kids? They'll fight back tooth and nail on that because money does matter in education. In other words, resources matter. How much you can pay your teachers, what kinds of resources you can get, what kind of buildings you can get. I have principals teaching in buildings right now that are over 100 years old in Chicago. I know that there are states that actually have funding formulas that divert greater state funds to the schools that have the lowest income neighborhoods. Why? Because those are the kids that need the resources the most. Kids from highly resourced neighborhoods, as we know from the data, are likely to do well in school, regardless
1: of the resources of the school. It seems like people are are moving in that direction, that the legislation is trying to move in that direction. It's trying. And (laughs) And actually, if we had a different governor, different party, it would have gotten closer because they would have signed that bill and it would have happened, at least with this budget. With this particular budget. Not long term. Well, one of the things I would say to that argument is if you come to me as a parent or as a local school council member and you say that and it's like you want me to do it like that, I would say no. I made a decision to move to Winneka for that very reason. I'm paying in. If someone came to me and said, okay, we're going to gradually de-escalate this to mm-hmm. make it yeah. over time yeah," and it gives those families that are thinking about moving there – I can probably live with that. The people who are already there are definitely going to have some pain. But the argument can be made is, yeah, you might be doing well here in Winneka or the North Shore or the western suburbs, but you still have to interact with people from that other world. It is better for our state and it's better for our our community as a whole to have well-educated people. This is why I use the
0: term as far as they know several times about right. their self Oh, I heard you, I heard you. Right? There's a great book out, it's 10 years old now, but it's a really nice book, it's called The Price We Pay. And what it points out is that even for some simple metric like graduation rates, for every single percent point that you fail to graduate kids, healthcare costs, prison costs, social service costs escalate. It costs all of us significantly more to fail to educate kids than it does to educate them well it's not even close but most people don't have those kinds of data in front of them it's it's a pretty complex sort of thing to think about wait a minute you mean 20 years from now if i don't invest you know i mean people tend to think in the short term not in the long term and people tend to think i get it i get that it's more expensive for the state as a whole but you know I, i'm taking care of mine
1: you mentioned several things that will improve education in schools, or even the environment in which education is taught. If you could, with the stroke of a pen, overnight, change three things.
0: Here are three changes that would make an enormous difference. One of them would be to have fair funding of schools. Fair funding, as some states have demonstrated, would mean that you actually devote more public dollars to the neediest schools Because it costs more to educate low-income kids than it costs to educate upper-income kids because of the resources those kids already have or don't have, right? So fair funding formulas would be step one. This would pay off big time for the entire state over the long haul. Number two is investing in school leadership because it's the single most cost-effective lever we've discovered for improving the learning outcomes of lower-income kids. We don't have anything even in theory that matches putting a strong school leader in place. And the empirical data are absolutely clear on that now. So basically invest in school leader programs that are state of the art. And there's only a handful of us in the whole country that have what you would call state of the art right now. And we're actually being paid to mentor other states and other universities to do this kind of work. Number three would be changing how we test our test systems, which are massive multi-million dollar systems, do not give teachers and principals and parents the information they need to improve instruction for student learning outcomes. We have a test system that basically doesn't work to help improve student performance. The reality is that even something as simple as a gymnastics coach, that person is constantly assessing performance in the moment so that... The data that the that the gymnastics coach gets by observation and touch and everything as he's working allows him to change instruction on the spot. If you took that away from a gymnastics coach or a piano teacher, they couldn't teach. But for public school teachers, we have a really elaborate standardized testing system that doesn't give them the information that they need until the following year when it's too late to use that information and so on. So three big things. Much different approach to assessment, equalize funding, and invest in school leadership because that we know is a cost-effective intervention. All those three things affect all kids in all schools, and they're all implementable at scale.
1: Last words that you have for people out there that have an interest in education, that want to become advocates of education, or maybe on the fence about thoughts on education in Illinois. It's really clear that education
0: is in fact worth investing in in terms of making a better quality of life for communities and better quality of life for individuals. You won't end economic inequality through education. You won't end racism through education. But what you can do is equip people to be better agents of change so they themselves can play significant roles and they themselves will have more control over the variables in their own lives. That's a pretty powerful reason to invest in education.
1: Deeper Dish is hosted by Farah. Intro, mixing, editing is done by Alyssa Moxley, produced by me, Farah. Our outro was performed by From Beyond These Walls and the song is City of Dystopia. If you want to contact us directly, feel free to contact us at deeperdishshy at gmail.com. Or on Twitter, our handle is at deeperdishshy. Our website is www.deeperdishshy.com.